This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. My name's uh, Brad Stahlberg. I write for Outside in New York magazines, and um, my first book was just released last June. Uh, and the book's called Peak Performance, hence the name of, uh, of the quick talk I'll be giving tonight. So I'm uh, going to go over some ideas on how to achieve your best as both athletes, because I know that this group has a particular interest in cycling, um, but also some principles that can apply outside of sport as well. So a little bit about the book that I wrote. Uh, two plus years of researching and reporting on the science of human performance. So by the science of human performance, again, I don't just mean athletic, but also artistic, intellectual, um, interviewed tons of entrepreneurs as well. Uh, From a scientific standpoint, looked at cognitive science, neuroscience, psychology, physiology, philosophy. So the main theme of the research and reporting for the book was let's look at fields that are traditionally somewhat siloed and see if we can't find some commonalities. Uh, And sure enough, commonalities did emerge. Uh, I say we because you'll notice another name down there. So I wrote the book with a co-author. His name is Steve Magnus. He's the head track and field and cross-country coach at the University of Houston, also coaches a handful of world champion and Olympic caliber athletes, and he was also the whistleblower in the Nike doping allegations. Um, So Steve, very interesting guy, super intellectual, and also very brave. So we wanted to get as close to the truth as possible. And what I mean by that is we took a very scientific approach. So the things that I'm going to be talking about, they're somewhat there's like a fair amount of uncertainty and ambiguity, and we accepted that. So what this book isn't is it's not a Tim Ferriss book on how to hack your way to peak performance, because those hacks are just not supported by science. Um, we like to joke that it's not bro science, it's real science. So the book has over 150 notes. Uh, we probably would have sold more copies if we went the other direction, uh, but it's in our nature to be scientific thinkers. So three main themes emerged out of the research and reporting. The first theme is what we call the growth equation, which is stress plus rest equals growth. The second theme is around priming, or the importance of your environment and your surroundings. And then the third theme is around purpose, uh, and in particular, something that is called self-transcendence, which sounds very self-helpy, but was actually some of the more interesting science in the entire book. So we'll get to that in a bit. So first, I'm going to start out with the growth equation. So this is a picture of an enormous bicep. Uh, Anyone in the room, either a current or former athlete? Okay, a couple hands. So can someone tell me how you make a muscle stronger, and whether that's an actual muscle like your bicep or your cardiovascular system? Tear Tear it and let it rest. Exactly. So it's called either progressive overload or endurance uh, sports scientists like to call it periodization. But it's this notion of in order to grow uh, any physical capability, so again, whether it's your cardiovascular system or an actual muscle, you have to stress the system and then you have to let it recover. So what happens if you pick up way too heavy of a weight and you try to curl it? You destroy it, right. You get injured. You pull out your back or you're just like, screw this, I can't lift this weight. You quit. So that's an example of too much stress. Now, on the flip side, if you were to go to the gym and sit there and curl something half the weight of my water bottle, I could sit here and do this all day, and I probably wouldn't elicit an adaptation in my muscle. 
So the key to make a muscle grow or to grow a system is to find the right amount of stress, stress that system, and then let it recover. During the recovery period, it adapts and it comes back stronger. So then we started looking at the science on creativity, um, and particularly the arts. So anyone here a musician? Got one hand. What instrument? Sorry, I'm putting you on the spot. Piano. Can you, another hand, what instrument? Piano. Can you tell me a little bit about how you practice, in, in, or at least how you found practice to be effective? And don't just say what you think I want to hear. I'm curious. Um, repetition. Basically, the difficult passage you play over and over again. And uh, the key thing is, once you play it right, carry on playing right. Don't play it wrong, right, and stop playing. Yep. And from the front of the room? Yeah, repetition. You also said difficult passage. So when you're practicing and you're really trying to improve, is it enjoyable? No. And I'm hearing somewhat. So a um, guy named Anders Eriksson, he studies expertise. He spent a lot of time at the Berlin Music Academy, which is one of the finest in the world, um, particularly studying violinist. And what he found is that a common theme amongst world-class violinists and what separated them, even from their national-class peers, um, it's not the 10,000-hour rule that Malcolm Gladwell made popular. It's actually how they practice. So not the amount of hours, but, but their routine. And what he found is that they would practice in chunks of between 60 and 90 minutes. They would rate their practice sessions as extremely uncomfortable, and then they would rest for between an hour and an hour and a half in between. So very similar to how you'd make an athletic muscle grow, it's how you can grow a creative or an artistic muscle. So it's this notion of stress, in this sense, really challenging yourself, making yourself uncomfortable, building in enough recovery, and then repetition. Repeat, evolve, grow. So then the, the third category that we looked at is more on, I guess, what I'd call intellectual creativity or breakthrough thinking. Um, and what the research here shows is that most creative ideas follow a three-step pattern. So that first step is immersion. So that's when you're really immersed in the subject matter that you're working on. Then the second step is incubation. So that's when you step away from what you're working on. And then the third step is insight, which is when you have that aha moment. So how many people in the room have had like an aha moment um, in the shower Got one hand, two hands, three. On a walk. Yeah. On a bike ride. So what cognitive scientists have found is that um, over 40% of all creative ideas come in a time period, it's wild, within one hour to five days after you've been working hard on something when you're no, lo excuse me, when you're no longer working on that thing. So again, somewhat similar. Stress plus rest equals growth, right? In this case, the stress is the immersion and throwing yourself into the topic. The rest is using a different part of your brain, literally zoning out, taking a walk, showering. And then the quote-unquote growth is this moment of insight. So by now, you've probably figured out. When I refer to stress, I don't mean the type of stress um, that you might experience if you're nervous before a performance review with a boss or in a fight with um, a romantic partner. Uh, I use stress in much more of an evolutionary sense, so it's some kind of stimulus that challenges you. Uh, I like to talk about just manageable challenges. 
So it's something that's ever so slightly outside of your comfort zone. And then rest is really anything that transitions from the fight-or-flight stress response um, physiologically and then psychologically, an activity that allows your conscious, effortful thinking mind to turn off. So some examples of rest. Um, Sorry, this is an ice bath. Yes. So what's very interesting is that more and more research is beginning to show that ice baths whether they're effective or not for athletes depends very little on the water temperature or how long you're in the ice bath. What it depends on is if the athlete thinks an ice bath is going to help them and enjoys the experience. So it used to be that they thought that the way that ice baths work is the freezing cold water lowers systemic inflammation and you recover faster. The reviews are super mixed on the actual effect of the cold water, What now leading sports scientists are theorizing is that it actually has more to do with cortisol and testosterone. And if you're really stressed out in the ice bath after a hard workout, your body doesn't really come down from the stress of a workout. So the, uh, and I know Justin practices sports medicine, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I think now the current thinking is if you think an ice bath makes you feel better, take ice baths. And if you don't, don't take ice baths. Am I right? I have that conversation many times a day. Yeah, so yes. Um... So other ways to rest, besides an ice bath, uh, that the research is pretty strong on. Um, So nature is a wonderful way to do everything from shift your physiological stress response into a more restful state, um, as well as usher creativity. All kinds of studies show that nature really helps with both physical and cognitive recovery. Uh, Meditation, listening to music, napping, and then spending time with peers. there's this really interesting research on social recovery, or this, uh, this theory that is, I guess, becoming more and more proven, that if after a really hard bout of doing anything, so again, whether it's physical or psychological, one of the best things that you can do is literally just to hang out with friends, because it shifts the hormonal response in your body from that of stress hormones to those that are more conducive to recovery. So uh, the universal growth equation, stress plus rest equals growth. Um, Too much stress, not enough rest. That's when you get injury, illness, and burnout. And then not enough stress, too much rest. That's when you get complacency, stagnation. I'm speaking here about uh, athletic, artistic, creative pursuits. I'd also say that it's probably true in relationships, um, right? Like you don't generally, people don't just get married and then have twins and just go, right? You kind of build capacity to handle things as a couple and you build in times, I'd imagine, of reflection and recovery. So I think that this is a theme that applies really quite broadly. Um, and it's not just individuals. So AOL, Kodak, and Blockbuster. These are all organizations that I would argue got complacent. Right When the environment changed, they didn't adapt. They didn't stress themselves. The Spurs, Apple, and Disney, I'd say the exact opposite. Um, so... Like, I know basketball more than, more than Disney and Apple, so I can speak best to the Spurs, but Greg Popovich has constantly been reinventing that team as the game has changed. And you hear interviews with the players, and they get very uncomfortable because the, the offensive schemes can change every two, three years, but that has allowed them to remain a top team, so they adapt. Uh, and then the final point to make is process over outcomes thinking, just hugely important. And what I mean by that is when you set some kind of goal, that's the outcome. And it's great to set that goal. It's a north star to shoot for. 
But once you've set that goal, best to focus on the process. So don't get all hung up worried about, am I going to achieve the goal or not? What are the acute steps that you need to nail to get to that goal? And just focus on nailing those steps. So then the second major theme that emerged uh, is this notion of priming, or the importance of your surroundings. So what the research shows and what the reporting also um, bared out is motivation is contagious. Now what's interesting is I thought going into this that a rising tide lifts all boats, and that if you had a really effective leader, that would bring the group up. Um, While leadership is obviously quite important, what the literature shows is that it's actually the weakest link that is more influential than the strongest link. So groups tend to fall to the lowest common denominator. And it even matters for some of the most self-disciplined people in the world. Uh, So there was a study of army cadets, and cadets are grouped into what are called squadrons, and that's the group of about 30 people that you spend your four years with. And Researchers from the Department of Defense wanted to know what would predict a squadron's success. And they wanted to examine something that was pretty highly controlled, so they looked at physical fitness, because the squadrons all worked out at the same time, and they all did the same workouts. So they took baseline fitness of each participant in the study, and they studied multiple squadrons, and then they looked at how the fitness changed against an individual's baseline over the course of four years. And what they found is that the squadrons that... Oh, and excuse me, so that's the fitness part. Then they also um, looked at motivation, and I believe like they called it like an apathy scale of everyone in the squadron. And what they found is that squadrons that had individuals that struggled with motivation and or were apathetic, sometimes had disciplinary problems, the fitness of everyone in that squadron fell down to that individual. So... You could have great individuals in a squadron, but their fitness still suffered based on the lowest common denominator. Um, And it's really important to know, it's not lowest common denominator in terms of skill, but in terms of affect and motivation. Um, So again, I I stress this point because for me it was counterintuitive. I always thought that leadership was really important in groups, but it turns out that science says that it's actually about weeding out or changing the attitude even better of the lowest common denominator. Um, Then the other big thing worth discussing in this notion of your surroundings is the importance of deep focus work. So studies show that 40%, um, you get 40% less done and with lower quality when you multitask. Now, 1% of people can effectively multitask. Odds are that's not anyone in the room because that's just how odds work. Um, One of my favorite studies in the book, uh, researchers at Stanford, so right right up the street, they selected for individuals who said that they were very strong multitaskers. And then they put these multitaskers in an fMRI, which is an MRI imaging machine that allows them to see brain activity. And they told the multitaskers, multitask, task switch, and they're looking up at the screen, and they have them switch between different tasks. And then they had them single task. And both on the MRI and in actually the quality of their solving the puzzles, even though they reported that they felt they were getting more done and at a higher quality when they were multitasking, they were getting more done when they were single-tasking, and what the fMRI studies show is that the brain actually switches at a very, very like minuscule level. So there's all kinds of switching costs involved with multitasking. Um, 
So I guess the moral of the story is most people are pretty prone to multitasking. Psychologically, it makes sense because you feel like you're getting a lot done, right? I'm being very productive. I'm working on all of these things. But what the research shows is that you're actually probably getting less done and certainly at a lower quality. Um, And yet, it's very hard to resist the urge to multitask. So this is a picture of a phone with Twitter on it and someone with an email client. And I would argue that these two devices, certainly for my generation, email and social media, are some of the most distracting things, period. Um, And for good reason. So I actually want to pause for a second. And everyone with a smartphone, if you could take it out and check your email or your favorite social media feed for me. And like really pay attention to what happens when you're checking it. Okay, so who checked social media? Anyone? All right, Justin. Um, What social media app did you check? Twitter. Okay, and walk me through the mechanics of how you check Twitter. Um, I use the the, the fingerprint to open my phone. Yep. Fingerprint is smudged, so I can wipe it on my hands. Again, it works, or it doesn't, and I detect my code. There's a folder that I try to hide it from me so I don't see it. But when you actually get to the app, what do you do when the app is open? Uh, I look to see if there's any mentions, and then I go to see what you've missed. Got it. And when you look to see if there's any mentions, do you have to swipe on your phone? No, it has a little blue dot that pops up. Is there a delay when that dot pops up? Uh, It's like a half a second after I open the app. Okay, that's important. Um, Did anyone check their email? Okay, someone walk me through the mechanics of checking email. Go for it. Typed in my code... Um, looked at all the different icons, hit the uh, email app, and I started scrolling through. First thing I did was delete junk email that I know I don't want. So, so when you say scroll through to update your email, and this is how my email client works, but I don't want to be leading. Do you have to like scroll down and wait for it to kind of do its thing? No, actually, no. So your emails are there. I'm seeing some other head nods. Yes, yes. So a lot of email clients and some, some apps, or I guess some software versions of Twitter, but even with this delay, but most email clients, you swipe down and a little ball rolls, and then you either get emails or you don't. And with Twitter, you swipe down and a little thing rolls, and you either, you know, someone liked your tweet. In Facebook, same thing, right? You swipe down the news feed, it takes a second, and it loads. So what other device operates very similarly, which also gets individuals completely hooked? Slot machines, exactly. So the app designers, like this is not an accident. They, they hire PhDs because more time you spend on their app, the better for their app. And the apps are designed exactly like a slot machine. And what the research shows is it's the same brain chemistry. So there's a neurochemical called dopamine, which was hugely beneficiary for us as we evolved. And dopamine is the neurochemical that makes us feel really good, not when we've achieved a reward, but in the pursuit of a reward. So in a slot machine, it's that exciting feeling that, oh, we might win. And when you're checking your email or when you're checking social media, it's that feeling that I matter in the world. Like, I'm getting an email. My, my existence is merited. Or someone likes something that I post on social media. 
So it sounds kind of trivial, but it's actually a huge reward because, again, it kind of solidifies that you exist and you're important. So there's a huge reason that it is so hard to step away from our phones and these devices. It's not only because they contain great information, but the way that they're set up uh, is to draw, draw us to them. So my, my own recommendation and what this isn't completely borne out um, by all the research, but certainly out of self-report, is just out of sight is out of mind. So when you're trying to do deep focus work, don't have your phone in your pocket, I guess out of sight and out of feel if it's on vibrate, but don't, don't have it on the table face down. Put it in your backpack. Even better, go to a coffee shop or if you're in your office, put the phone in a different room because even if your phone is right here, the amount of cognitive energy that you use just wondering what's happening on your phone or resisting the temptation to check your phone is clearly distracting from your work. Um, I'll speak to one study before I transition to the next topic. So researchers at Wisconsin had uh, people have intimate conversations, and they had three groups. One control group, there was nothing on a table, just a blank table, two people sitting across from it. Another control group, there was a notebook the size of a cell phone face down on a table. And then the third group, which was the experimental group, there was a cell phone face down on the table. And I think that these individuals spoke for something like 20 to 30 minutes. And then after they had the conversation, um, they were rated objectively, so on measures of recall, and also subjectively, about how connected they felt, how much they gained from the conversation, their experience in it. What they found is there was no difference between the table that had a notebook on it and nothing on it, but the table with the face-down phone the recall was like 60% worse, and they reported not feeling as connected, not getting as much out of the conversation. Um, so it's pretty powerful stuff. Then they repeated the experiment, and it wasn't even one of the participants' phones. It was the researcher's phone that was on the table face down. And the numbers were very similar. And what they posit is just knowing, having that phone, and it's a cue that I wonder if my daughter's okay, or I wonder what's happening in the world, it distracts from the task at hand. Um, so I really believe that out of sight is out of mind. So then the third major theme that I want to make sure to touch on is this notion of purpose, um, and particularly the power of self-transcendence. So this is a picture from a local news station in Utah. And what it shows is an individual that got hit by a car and became trapped under the front of the car. And someone was able to lift the car off the person to save the person's life. These are very infrequent. They happen rarely, and yet they happen more than once. Um, so, so, so often, I guess, that there is a field of scientific inquiry. It's called acts of hysterical strength or superhuman strength that studies these phenomena. So how is it possible that someone can do the equivalent of deadlifting more than the world record to get someone off a car, but the next day, if you were to ask that person, if you were to say, I will give you a million dollars to lift up that car, there's no way they could do it. So how does this work? So there are two theories of fatigue um, that the researchers who study these kinds of acts of hysterical strength point to. And the first one is called the central governor model of fatigue. Um, scientist named Tim Noakes in South Africa came up with this in the mid-90s. So what he says is that the brain shuts down the body when the body still may have more to give. So he argues that even though we feel physical fatigue in our body, it's actually not that the muscles are out of energy. It's that the brain as a protective mechanism is saying, you need to stop because if you push any harder, you could get injured. 
So you're literally protecting the self. Um, so fear is, in a sense, very ego-driven, right? So if you're caught up in yourself and you're protecting yourself, the brain likely will turn on and pull you back. Um, Noakes, quote-unquote, proved this, and it's still pretty contentious. He had individuals exercise to complete fatigue and to the point where they could not contract their muscle, and then he ran an electrical stimulant through their muscle, and it contracted with full force. So what he was arguing is the muscle still had enough ATP and glycogen to contract, so something else was causing this muscle to shut down. And that's how he came up with this central governor model that it's more of a nervous system response that is protecting the body. So then another model of fatigue that may explain some of these crazy acts of strength is called the psychobiological model. And this is from a researcher named Samuele Marcora, who is in Italy. And what Marcora says is that fatigue comes down to perception of effort versus motivation. So if perception of effort, if something feels really hard and motivation is low, you either stop doing it or you slow down, make it feel easier to bring the two into balance. If motivation is really high for something and perception of effort is low, you'll push harder until it meets motivation. So there are a few ways to be able to endure more. One is you can train physically to decrease perception of effort. So if you're stronger, something's going to feel easier. The other thing that you can do is increase your motivation. Um, when, we looked, when my co-author and I looked outside of sport, we found something really interesting, is that this model of fatigue holds really well in other settings. So whether it's office workers, artists, athletes, or even hospital janitors, individuals who know that they're doing something for the betterment of someone else or some greater cause tend to be willing to endure more discomfort and more fatigue. Um, hospital janitors is particularly on there. There was a study at University of Pennsylvania Hospital where they took 100 janitors, split them into two groups. One group just told to do their work, no change. The other group, um, they were educated on bacterial infections that spread through the hospital when the hospital is dirty. And they were showed data how having their areas of the hospital clean can actually result in lives saved. And that was the intervention. And over the course of the year, the group that had the intervention, they, on objective measures such as like cleanliness, clock in, clock out time, they scored something like 35% higher than the group that didn't, and they had less turnover. And it was just as simple as a reframing of their job from cleaning up vomit to saving lives. Um, and if you think about it, like janitorial work is a lot of grunt work. It's enduring perception of effort and grit. And if you know that it's going to benefit a greater cause, you're probably more likely to hang in there. So this last slide is of a phenomenal athlete named Shalane Flanagan. She just won the New York City Marathon. She's the first American woman to win in 40 years. Um, and after the race, I had the privilege to interview her for Outside Magazine. And I asked her what was going through her mind in the last few miles of the race. And she told me two things. She said that, so the New York Marathon, I don't know if you remember, there was that terrorist attack in New York a few days before the marathon. And there was actually some question if they should even run the race. So the first thing she said is that I was running for my country, and I was thinking of the victims of that attack. And then the other thing she said is I was thinking of all the women that I've trained with and all the girls that I know look up to me. So she didn't say she was thinking about her paycheck or the sponsorship she gained or how great it would feel to be champion. She said she, she actually described it in being like a trance. And she just said, I have to hold on for them. Um, pretty neat. 
And it sounds kind of cliche for the athlete to score the winning touchdown and thank God or thank their family. But the more that I've had the privilege of talking to athletes, especially endurance athletes, when they're really in the hurt box, they almost always report that they're thinking about something or some cause that's beyond themselves. And that's what helps them push through. Um, And it foots really well to both of these models of fatigue, right? If you're not so caught up in yourself, you're likely willing to endure more. All right, I think we're out of time. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed it. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.